the passage this morning is Matthew 5, verse 21 to 30. And you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift and, at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, leave, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who, ha who looks at a woman with lustful in intent has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it up and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is God's word. You may be seated. My favorite television series of all time is Breaking Bad. It's definitely not a show for everybody, but for me, it's perfect. The brilliant writing, the dark and dry humor, the slow burn narrative, the nuanced characters, the long character arcs, the absurdity. For a show about methamphetamine drug trafficking in the Southwest, the show is profoundly moral tracing the depravity of man and consequences of sin. The narrative revolves around Walter White, a brilliant yet underemployed high school chemistry teacher who has never been given the respect that his muted yet oversized ego feels it deserves. His students don't pay attention. His wife treats him disrespectfully. His promising career abandoned him. Former love interest spurned him. He's a man bottled up for 50 years and yet has stuffed a lifetime of unhealthy emotions. He finds out that he has terminal cancer and all of a sudden his muted ego is awakened from its lifelong slumber and a chemical reaction of two benign elements, Walter is transformed into Heisenberg an increasingly unstable compound that increasingly destroys every relationship in his path. The anger and root of bitterness in him overtakes his entire person. More on Walter in a minute. The big idea for this sermon this morning is this. We worship our way into sin. We must worship our way out of it. We worship our way into sin, we must worship our way out of it. Look back at the text with me in verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, 
and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments says simply, you shall not murder. You see, what is happening is you had this rabbinic teaching that would take the Ten Commandments and really strip them down in a way that would really narrow the scope of what God had intended in the text. Jesus is correcting all of that here. If you zoom out further, Jesus is teaching his audience about the ethics of the kingdom, the kingdom that he is creating. Legalism is odd. It's strange. Typically, when you think about the word legalism, you think of people who are trying to be more righteous or more self-righteous. But actually, if you strip it down, in many ways, legalism is about trying to boil down some teaching or command to its bare minimum strictures so that your actual responsibilities are as little as possible. Jesus takes square aim at this by expounding on the sixth and seventh commandments in the Ten Commandments here in our passage this morning. Jesus goes after the heart and not just mere external behaviors. This section on anger breaks down into two subparts. The first part comes in verses 21 and 22 concerning those who are battling anger. The second part comes from people who become aware that someone else is angry with them and not at peace with them in verses 23 to 26. We'll look at the first part concerning the people who are angry first. Jesus cites three examples of people who are angry in the text. Someone who is angry with their brother, someone who is insulting their brother, and then someone who is mocking or scoffing someone else. So I've been in full-time vocational ministry for about 11 years, and one of the things that has consistently surprised me is the amount of anger that many people harbor that I minister to. Now, you have to understand, in my family growing up, we had a very tranquil household, and I've always been somebody who avoided drama and or dramatic people or situations. I'm not saying that that's necessarily good, it's just, or even a healthy thing, but that's just been a baseline reality for me. And so then I enter into pastoral ministry, right? And ministry is messy because ministry involves people, and people are messy. So I find myself coaching people in hard situations, mediating uh, conflicts between church members, counseling marriages that are on fire with anger. And I've seen people addicted to anger. I've seen rage, rage, rageaholism. Um, that's a thing. Um, then there are people who have also um, let the root of bitterness grow. These folks, over time, they become cynical, angry, and bitter about just about everything. Honestly, if I'm, if I'm really honest, I find anger boring as a pastor. Let me unpack why. Anger is a surface sin. It's a surface sin. Anger is masking deeper problems. It doesn't help people, I counsel, to just deal with their anger. Their anger is just the presenting symptom of typically a much bigger and more deeper-rooted problem. In other words, anger is the part of the iceberg that is visible above the waterline, but the real problems are below the waterline. Now, you can be angry for a number of reasons, 
some of these things are better than others or worse than others in terms of their underlying you know, uh, manifestations, but things like blocked goals, unmet expectations, injustices rendered, unprocessed grief, inability to control your circumstances, feelings of being disrespected, fears of numerous varieties. So humans are complicated creatures, right? But we aren't that complicated. I found that most of these things boil down to really two things. It's our wants and it's our fears. Wants and fears. These two things drive so many emotions, so many beliefs, and so many actions. So I'm more concerned at what is beneath the anger than what the anger is presenting itself at face value. What constellation of wants and fears is behind this anger? Is there some loss in your life that hasn't been properly grieved? Is there some unresolved tension that you can't fix but also just can't seem to embrace? Is there some injustice that you're powerless to receive justice over? Are there expectations in your life that have gone unmet? Are there goals that you can't seem to accomplish? Are there people or relationships you can't seem to control? Ask yourself what wants and fears are behind your anger. This will begin to yield for you some answers to what the thing beneath the thing is, and you might also learn some things about idols in your life. Anger in many ways is a cancer. It will slowly eat you from the inside out. The root of bitterness grows slowly over time. I've literally watched that root of bitterness grow in many people's souls over the years. And over time, it will sabotage every relationship that you have. If you sense that this is a thing that's growing in you, get help now. Escalate your situation. Get honest with some close Christian community and share your struggle. Start an ongoing dialogue with a mentor that you have in the faith. Set up a standing appointment with a good Christian counselor. This won't be easy work, but it's necessary. Sin never exists in a vacuum. It's always spilling over onto the people around you. And this is especially true with anger. Here's another way to think about this. I'm borrowing an analogy from Paul Tripp here. Consider for a moment that your life is like a glass of liquid that's sitting on a resting table and that the circumstances of your life are things that shake that table. Sometimes the circumstances of your life will shake that table enough that the liquid that's inside that cup starts to spill out onto the table. Now let's consider for a moment in this scenario that the liquid that spills out onto the table is liquid anger, right? The temptation that we all have when our liquid anger is, is now out on the table and visible for everyone to see is we say that the liquid, that the liquid anger, well, the, what's responsible for that 
is the circumstances that were agitating the table. But the problem with that is that that liquid, that liquid anger, it was already in the cup before the table ever got agitated. The circumstance just revealed what was already in your heart. Let's go back to my introductory story about Breaking Bad. Walter always had anger in his heart. It's just that his cup never got agitated enough for it to spill out. But when he got a terminal cancer diagnosis, the calculus of all of his relationships immediately changed, and now he had nothing to lose. His ego grew and grew, and he, be he became maniacal. The root of bitterness overtook his soul. The consequences of his anger in the show are grave. Life circumstances reveal the heart. And the context for most of these life circumstances are interpersonal relationships. We worship our way into anger. Let's look back at the text, starting in verse 23. Let's read 23 to 26 here again. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in the very beginning of our text here this morning in verse 21, Jesus says, you all, second person, uh, plural, have heard that it was said to those of old. But starting in 23, and this is just some of the nuance of English, because we don't see these things because of verb endings and whatnot, um, he gets more personal. He goes second person sing singular. So when he says in verse 23, so if you are offering, the you here is second person singular. So it's like, hey, you, guy, sitting right in front of me. His audience begins to change in verses 23 to 26. The audience that he's hitting at here is someone who isn't necessarily angry themselves, but it is someone who becomes aware that someone else is either angry or not at peace with them. So in this scenario, that person's about to go and worship, but Jesus values peacemaking in a way that encourages this person to go and make peace before they go and make their gift offering. Jesus also encourages haste in finding peace, lest these things grow larger and larger and the consequences more and more severe. So for as much as the Bible talks about interpersonal peacemaking, there isn't a whole lot of talk about it in the church. There are only a handful of resources that have really been written on this. But the handful of resources that have been written on this topic are really, really helpful. And I want to share um, the, kind of the best things that I've kind of gleaned from that from over the years. The most helpful resource that I can point you to is a book entitled The Peacemaker uh, by a guy named Ken Sandy. In that book, Ken provides a biblical guide for resolving interpersonal conflict. There is scarcely a month that goes by in ministry where I don't go back to some of the foundational principles that I'm about to share with you um, from this resource. 
So one of the overarching principles in this peacemaking uh, book is the idea of the slippery slope of peacemaking. The temptation in relational conflict is to either revert to the extremes of fight or flight. In other words, escape-type responses or attack-type responses. And so most of us are either wired to love conflict or to avoid it altogether. However, we have lots of good options in the middle about how to embrace conflict as an opportunity for sanctification and growth. The goal of relational peacemaking is obviously to glorify God through reconciliation. So we have many options to go about that. Let me paint a couple different scenarios. Um, One option is always to overlook an offense. This isn't always possible, though oftentimes it is. Um, Sometimes there's also situations that don't warrant overlooking. I had a situation last week where I couldn't do that, and that required for me to lean into a hard conversation I really didn't want to have. But you know what? It ended up being redemptive, and I'm glad I had the conversation. These things don't always end up that way, but sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, they do. Another option is to speak directly with someone um, when, when there is an interpersonal conflict in a one-on-one manner, especially when there's a situation where you can't overlook an offense. Another option, if, or if that other option is unsuccessful, or the gravity of the situation is more serious, then you might enlist the help of a trained and impartial third person to help mediate a conflict and set appropriate relational and safety boundaries for the conversation. Finally, in a more serious way, um, when there are things like criminal activity, abuse, trauma, these are situations to escalate immediately and enlist the appropriate authorities. I would not counsel or expect a victim of a crime or abuse to go and face um, their perpetrator in a one-on-one fashion in some of the scenarios previously represented. But in such instances, God has given us institutions that we can lean upon to help adjudicate those kinds of situations. But let's take, let's take some run-of-the-mill conflict. Okay? Let's say there's a conflict between two moms. And let's say it's pertaining to something related to their kids. We'll keep it vague. Feelings are hurt. There's an offended party named Kim. And then there's uh, another woman named Susan. And Susan isn't fully aware of the way that she has offended Kim. Now, the offense is greater for Kim than what she can overlook, but she really values her relationship with Susan. And so she leans, in to, uh, leans into that relationship, and she calls Susan and so she can set up a time to meet face-to-face with her so that she can share her heart. And when they meet, Kim tells Susan this, Hey, Susan, when you did that thing with your kids the other week, It really made me feel this way for these reasons. I value our relationship too much not to talk about it and to let you know how I feel. Now, an excellent response from Susan in this instance upon hearing the pain that her actions have caused her friend would be this. Hey, Kim, I really appreciate you valuing me enough to share this with me. I'm so sorry that I did that thing with my kids. I'm sorry that it hurt you. I will rectify this situation by doing this other thing over here. And in the future, I will address these kinds of circumstances differently. Kim, would you forgive me? 
In this scenario, Susan used what Ken Sandy calls the seven A's of confession. This gets a bit lengthy, but I think it's worthwhile. And there's a, there's a logic to the order of it as well. In terms of you know, confessing things when you have wronged somebody else, um, an excellent confession will involve all of these elements. So first, address everybody involved. That means everybody who is affected by your actions. Second, avoid all of the things like ifs and buts and maybes. Don't try to make excuses for the things that you've done wrong. Three, admit, speci you know, admit with specificity, both in terms of attitudes and in actions. Acknowledge the hurt that you've caused, expressing sorrow for all the parties that, whom you have hurt. Accept the consequences. This might involve making restitution in some ways. Six, alter your behavior, both in attitude and actions. And then seventh, ask for forgiveness. Doing these things in this way, and again, this isn't a formula, right? But doing things this way helps avoid the, the classic, oh, I'm sorry you felt that way, Kim. It's not a real confession, right? And we've all been there. And it's really uncomfortable when you're on the receiving end of that. So an appropriate response from Kim, if she heard this kind of um, thing from Susan, would be something like this. And this is what Ken of Ken Sandy calls the four promises of forgiveness. One, I will not dwell on this incident. Two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And four, I will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. Now again, this isn't some magic formula like abracadabra or um, anything like that, but covering these things in your own words thoroughly ensures or increases the probability that real actual forgiveness and reconciliation can be transacted. All right, that's a run-of-the-mill scenario. What about what do you do when there is a serious wrong and you are largely powerless to deal with the circumstances, right? This happens. Take for, example, take for instance this week the case of Botham Jean in Dallas, Texas. This young man was killed in his own apartment when an off-duty police officer, Amber Geiger, mistook her, his apartment for hers and shot and killed him. This week, she was convicted for murder by a jury of her peers. However, when sentencing came down, she was only given 10 years in prison with eligibility of parole in five. Now, in a stunning display of the gospel, Botham's younger brother, Brant, forgave Amber and said that her that his brother Botham would have wanted her to give her life to Christ. And this is the best thing that she could do with her life. He then asked the judge if he could give Amber a hug. And this was a stunning, shocking, and scandalous act of forgiveness and grace. Only the gospel can produce such a display. However, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. And in this instance, a strong case can be made that reconciliation has not been transacted. 
Reconciliation requires at least two things. Forgiveness on the part of the aggrieved or victim and justice on the part of the abuser or perpetrator. Without both elements, reconciliation has not been transacted. Similar to the forgiveness offered by the families of the Charleston Nine towards white supremacist Dylan Roof, Brandt's actions were a remarkable testimony to the power, reality, and freedom offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. While we celebrate what Brandt did, it's unfair and unhelpful to place the expectation and or burdens of such extensions of forgiveness on the victims of injustice. We ought to be careful in our celebration of what Brandt did to expect or seek to extract such things from other victims, especially when those victims may not have yet or may not ever be able to receive this worldly justice for wrongs accrued. It is not unbiblical for victims to want to see justice. There are huge portions of the Bible that speak to how we handle situations where you have parties who have been wronged. Further, who has the burden of first action in the uh, justice and forgiveness situation? We celebrate it when those uh, who are first to act are those who forgive, but it's unfair to expect them to be the first to always respond, especially when justice may or may not have been served in this world. So where do you go if you're one of Botham's relatives and you just aren't in the same place as your brother? I think the answer in many ways is found in the Psalms. All we have is lament and crying out to God. We embrace and we lean into the tension that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And we grieve and we grieve and we grieve again. Days, months, and years pass, and we grieve some more. That's the human condition. Horrible loss doesn't give us license to let the root of bitterness grow. But how do you lament, and how do you grieve? I believe that worshiping something greater than the loss is the answer. When you are powerless, you can either fill your soul with anger or you can seek the help of a power higher than that loss. I am telling you right here, right now, in this sermon, that that person is Jesus. He's the creator of the entire universe and not of the single thing in the entire universe is held together apart from his person. He took on humanity because he loves you deeply He's in control of everything, and he is good. We might not have the perspective to see it in every moment, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. Leaning into worshiping him and casting all of your cares upon him is his desire. He says to us in his word that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. So I say this, when you have something that you are angry about, and you sense that the root of bitterness is growing. Take your pain, your loss, your grief, your injustice, your hurt, 
your shame, your wants, your fears, and you lay that at the foot of the cross. And you do it again, and you do it again. And you embrace that tension of living in a world where the kingdom is already here in some ways, but it's not yet fully, finally, and completely consummated. That means we will constantly be living in these tensions. Sometimes the person who experiences the most freedom in an act of forgiveness is the person who is extending that forgiveness. Unreconciled horizontal relationships will impact your vertical relationship with God. While, reconcil- while reconciliation requires both parties, it might not always be possible. But as it says in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So in summation, when able, overlook the offense, keep short accounts, deal directly with people. If you feel wronged or you become aware that someone isn't at peace with you, get your heart right and initiate a face-to-face conversation. If and when there's a situation that you're powerless to experience reconciliation, lean into the pain and the loss and continue to leave those things in lament and grief at the feet of Jesus. We worship our way into anger. We have to worship our way out of it. Let's look back at the text in verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay. Obviously, Jesus commands here to cut off your right eye and your hand. They're not literal. Because even if you cut off your right eye, you'd still have uh, your left eye and you'd be able to sin with that as well as your mind. Okay. But what we're talking about here is there's tremendous value in your right eye. And there's tremendous value in your right hand. And the point is this. We shouldn't allow anything that we value and that we find precious to get in the way of us in the kingdom of God, our eternal destiny. One commentator had these super intense words. Now, bear in mind, this is coming from like the early 20th century. Um, but here it is. Sin, being a destructive force, must not be pampered. It must be put to death. Temptation should be flung aside immediately and decisively. Dilly-dallying is deadly. Halfway measures work havoc. The surgery must be radical. Shadow boxing will never do. (laughs) I love the language. It's great. You don't see commentators write like this anymore. In other words, to quote Mike Ehrmantraut from Breaking Bad, no half measures. 16th century English reformer Thomas Cranmer put it like this. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind 
justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. In other words, it is out of the heart that we act, and then we find sets of ideas that justify our feelings and our actions. Increasingly, we are not a thinking culture. We are a feeling culture. Not all of that is bad, but there are ways in which these cultural shifts are problematic. Sociologist Christian Smith has referred to this cultural shift as, quote, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. He says this concerning expressive individualism. Lean into this quote with me. The emancipation, equality, and moral affirmation of all human beings as being autonomous, self-directing, individual agents who should be able to live out their lives as they personally so desire by constructing their own favorite identities, entering and exiting relationships as they choose, and equally enjoying the gratification of experiential, material, and bodily pleasures. This is the culture that I regularly experience when I go downtown. It's a little different than in the suburbs where I reside. But you get this sense that my identity is my God. And only I can determine my identity. All truth is personal to me and me alone, and I'm the only person who can de de determine what that is. And all truth is found within. Further, I will do anything to make myself happy. Consider the lyrics of Pharrell's hit song, Happy. Y'all know this song, the, the beat's so catchy. Um, it's a good song. Um, Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. This isn't how life works, though. What happens when my identity and my pursuit of my individual happiness is completely opposite of yours. Who wins? What if my identity is only happy when your identity is miserable? Who wins? Who's right? Who's wrong? What's ethical? It becomes absurd and totally unlivable. Compound, compound this with our deeply divided country right? So if everyone's out there just kind of like developing their own identity, and we're a country that's deeply divided, and people are really keen on, you know, making enemies out of one another, man, this is a recipe for some, some real problems. So some cultural moment happens, and half the country gets on the internet to go and score points and dunk on whoever they have determined the enemy is. So the whole thing is a recipe for cultural and civilizational rot. Historically, we have found our identities in things that are outside of ourselves and not from within. 
Identity comes from things that are bigger than us, bigger than we are. Things like God, community, truth, history. So the sheer dissonance of millions of people creating their own individual identities that no one else is allowed to critique is dangerous. It's staggering. So how does this relate back to our text? I promise it does. Sexuality is at the forefront of how we are creating our new identities in this current cultural moment. Our text is challenging the idea that we all get to create our individual, curated sexual identity along with our own moral framework for that identity. Just like in the previous passage where Jesus is expounding on the sixth commandment, here he's expounding on the seventh commandment. That seventh commandment's this, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus' teaching ain't that complicated here. Adultery isn't just the actual physical breaking of the marital vows. Adultery can exist in the heart in the form of lust. And Jesus isn't just interested in external behavior modification. Jesus is interested in the heart. So, okay, we've got to talk about some really uncomfortable stuff, okay? The internet, mobile phones, pornography, infidelity. I'm going to be real brief on this. Um, and I started doing a deep dive on some of the, some of the st statistics on this thing, and I just had to stop. Because it is, it is so bad and so scary and so epidemic, and the ways in which the, the law of diminishing returns are, are taking people into, uh, sucking them into the black hole and the vortex of these things is just it's super scary. But let me recount some of these things. So regarding pornography usage inside the church, here it is. This is today. 64% of men in the church and 15% of women in the church view porn at least once per month. That's at least once per month, okay? The average age of first exposure now to pornography is 12 years old and dropping. 27% of teens receive sexts. It's a hard word to say. 15% of teens send them. And according to a 2014 study, again, that's five years ago, 68% of divorce cases right now involve at least one party meeting a new lover on the internet. I, I, I got about this far and kind of drilling down on this stuff. I just had to stop, guys. Um, it's so depressing. It's so bad. But here's the deal. We have enough people here in this room that pretty much anything that, like, I just shared with you, it's going on here. Okay? Every one of these things is going on here. Okay? So we need, to, we need to find a place and um, with, uh, you know, your shame is going to lead you into isolation. You're not going to talk about these things, but we've got to, you've got to deal with this stuff because it, it's going to kill you and you're going to shipwreck your life if you don't stop. But you can't stop without Jesus, okay? Let me read the text again. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I'm not here to slap you on the wrist or beat you up. But this is really, really serious and really scary stuff. I'm no different and no better than you. I'm in the same boat. We're all living in the same culture and society, okay, together. These are very challenging times to be alive pertaining to these sins. And sin is so unbelievably deceptive. It is constantly lying to us. It is over-promising and under-delivering. So I'm here to preach to myself just as much as I am to preach to you. Jesus told this other parable once. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus and his kingdom are not instant gratification. Jesus and his kingdom have tremendous joy, but the Christian life comes with tremendous tension. Jesus and his kingdom are costly. It costs you everything that you would have and that you knew in your previous life to follow him in the cost of discipleship. But guess what? It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Does it feel that way in every moment? Especially in the face of temptation? No, it doesn't. It's still true, though. I hate being lied to. Your idols are lying to you. Let me read to you from Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Your idols want you either numb or dead. Your idols either want you numb or dead. So what is all of this here? creation. Why does any of this exist? What are humans? Why are we here? You are either some incredibly improbable cosmic accident or you were made by the person of Jesus. There are no other options. If you were made by him, you are his treasured and cherished possession. Live in light of that. Be anchored to that. 
I can guarantee you that there is not some magic truth that some, somewhere deep down in your soul that if you just mine it, you'll just find this magic identity that will suddenly make sense of everything in existence. The notion that if you just find your authentic self, that somehow you will be happy, that's a lie. Humans exist within space and time. I'm relatively well-traveled. I've been to over 15 countries, seen at least three cities in all those countries on four different continents. But I'm limited by space and time. I haven't, I haven't seen the whole world, and I haven't seen everything. You know, think about history. Like, my life's like this much, and like, you know, this long thing of just even like the 6,000 years that, um, of recorded history. It would be the height of arrogance for me to say that somehow I figured the world out. I'm 37 years old. What in the world do I know? I know less every year that I'm alive. Consider how absurd that it would be for me, to, you know, if I'm somebody who's concocting my own identity to say that I've kind of magically arrived where I've found this, this truth within and that nobody else has ever found before. When nobody else in human history has come up with the same constellation of beliefs and the way that they see the world from this identity. The odds that you have it all figured out from, from just truth within, from a self-created identity, it becomes nonsensical. Church, we need Jesus so badly. There are so many ways that we can shipwreck our lives. Jesus has given his life for you. He kept all the rules that we've broken. He died in our place. He wants to trade your disobedience for his obedience. Sell it all. Go all in with Jesus. Your idols want to kill you. Jesus wants to give you a new heart, a new record, and a new world. Jesus is making everything new. Worship him. This is your moment right now to say that you are sick and tired of your idols lying to you. This is your moment right now to say that you are sick and tired of going back to the same things over and over again that never leave you satisfied and make you keep coming back to them. This is your moment to wake up from your anesthesia. There is a king. There is a kingdom. If you know Jesus, he's already given you a new identity. You're his child. You're a member of his family. You are an heir to everything that he possesses. Worship him. The toxic relationship that you keep going back to, the addiction that keeps over-promising and under-delivering, the website you can't seem to shake, the bitterness that keeps growing, the anger that's boiling over. Today, right now, say, enough is enough. What in the world is this stuff doing for you? Stop! Whether you've known him most your life or today for the very first time, put your faith in Christ Jesus. Lay all your burdens, pains, frustrations, hurts, losses, traumas, wounds, wants, and fears 
and take them at the put put them at the foot of the cross of Christ Jesus. We worship our way into sin. We must worship our way out of it. I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but I want us to sit in silence for a moment. And I want you to just talk to Jesus. I just want you to have a conversation with him. So right now, cry out to Jesus silently and be honest and raw with him with the things that are on your heart. I promise you that he wants to hear from you. And in a moment, I'll pray for us together.